We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. For boosted parlays to live in-game offs on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit winbet.com. That's W-H-N-N-Bet.com to start winning. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. Joined as always by my co-host, Nick Pilato. Mailbag time today. We haven't done a mailbag in a while, so we're doing one today. We're going to roll right into it, but first, a little shameless plug, a little shameless promo. Please, please help us out. Help us grow this podcast. We're about 250 reviews away on iTunes from hitting 1,000. I really want to hit the four-digit mark. I really want to see 1K when I look, when I jump on the podcast app and I look for Big Blue Banter and I see Giants podcast and I see 1K reviews. Because look, we recently got a review for someone who said, I just found the podcast from searching in iTunes for Giants podcast. And that's exactly why we need you guys to help us out and leave a rating and review. It moves us up the algorithm. It helps and it helps people who aren't aware of our podcast, see our podcast, listen to our podcast, give it a shot, and then hopefully stick with our podcast if they like the content. So please do us a favor. Even if you've already done it, unsubscribe, resubscribe, leave the review, leave another review. If you throw a question in there, we'll answer. We haven't gotten any questions lately, but if you throw a question in there, we'll answer. Please help us out. Make sure you download every podcast. Don't just hit play, hit download. Then you can delete it after. That's perfectly fine. Just need those downloads, need those reviews. Help us get over 1K. So without further ado, let's jump right into the mailbag, Nick. And we're going to kick this mailbag today off with a question from Huckleberry Nacho. And he asks, if Daniel Jones plays just okay, and the Giants somehow end up with a pick outside of the top 10. Should they mortgage their future draft picks to move up in the 2023 draft or look to, to look toward trading for or signing an unrestricted free agent like Lamar Jackson? If if either of the latter option, <laughs> if you're choosing the latter option, who would you target? This is a good question. Plus, Huckleberry Notch, what would that taste like? Because this isn't a Huckleberry like a like a Blackberry or something. I don't really know what a huckleberry is. I assume it's like a blackberry. Yeah. So you put the blackberry on a tortilla chip, um, and I guess that's a huckleberry nacho. Maybe, maybe. Anyways, unique name, but I think this is a good question, and I'm not certain. 
which direction to go if I'm going to be completely real here. First, Lamar Jackson. I feel like this is – am I wrong to say that this is an important year for him? Because, I mean, we all know his talent. He had an MVP season. And then it seemed like the NFL maybe figured him out a little bit, specifically in those playoff games, forcing him to throw outside the numbers and all of that. And then he had this injury-riddled year this past season. So I think this year will tell a lot about Lamar Jackson and his demand. I still think he'll be in demand, I think, hopefully for him, because I always will view him as a Raven. Maybe the Ravens will try and retain him and get him under contract. But I do think that this season of Lamar Jackson is important to this question, not to really opt out. So I think a lot of this also comes down to what does – Brian Dable and Joe Shane want? How, how highly do they view a Bryce Young or a CJ Stroud or any of these young guys? So I don't want to like cop out of this question, but I'm honestly uncertain. Yeah, I think Lamar Jackson won't be available. I think the Ravens are going to keep him under contract. I think the injuries were the biggest issue for him, not the NFL figuring him out. And I'm not saying you're saying that by any means, Nick, but I just feel like he's going to have a really good year with Baltimore. So that's less of a concern on my end. I don't think he'll be available. I'm not so sure any of these quarterbacks will be available for the Giants. So for me, you know, if it's possible to move up for one of these quarterbacks and you believe in one of these quarterbacks, that's one thing. But if they're picking outside the top 10 like you align in this scenario, Huckleberry. I just think it's going to have to most likely be another year of waiting. And the Giants have set themselves up pretty decently for a bridge year because they have Tyrod Taylor signed under contract for the next season. So even if they think Jones ah, only played okay. We don't want to invest in him long-term. We want to put the cap space there. Well, they still have Taylor and potentially Davis Webb under contract, so they can get away with that for a year. Quite frankly, I'm not going to make this case right now, but a fair case can be made that Tyrod Taylor gives the Giants as good a chance to win at this point as Daniel Jones. And I'm not making that case. I'm hoping Daniel Jones's flashes can come out, but the lack of consistency in Jones's game have been alarming. And when they tried to have him stop throwing turnovers, like we talked about in recent podcasts, He stopped throwing touchdowns. He stopped throwing the ball down the field, and he stopped creating plays with his arm on a consistent basis. Again, there's flashes all the time. So I feel just as good with Terod Taylor as I do with maybe somebody like Sam Darnold or Daniel Jones or anyone who hasn't really taken that step despite having the draft pedigree. And so we'll see what happens there. But to me, I'm completely fine with if the Giants don't have an opportunity to swing at quarterback in 2023, rolling forward with Terod Taylor and Davis Webb. That's just me, but I'd be completely fine. Or maybe you can get in that scenario, Jones back on a cheap deal, on a one-year deal that's cheap. You don't see that often, but it's possible he'll sign a one-year prove-it deal rather than you know forcing the Giants to have to use the franchise tag on him, which is an expensive deal, or sign him to a long-term contract despite only having like he aligns in this scenario an okay year. So still so many variables in play with Jones. There are a lot of variables. I don't think I would be okay with just rolling with Tyrod Taylor and Davis Webb, unless like Daniel Jones goes down week one and, and Tyrod Taylor steps in, plays, say, 16 games and, and looks really, really competent because I like Tyrod Taylor, but I like him more as a backup. It seems like every time he was given the, the full position, he always got injured. He's one of those players that seems to get injured a lot. I don't know if that's a consistent trend or, or what exactly – the reasons are as to why he's getting injured, but I don't think I'd feel comfortable going into a season where you're starting to have a lot of these players either come up to a contract year or they're, they're really starting to hit their stride with, with, with no pure quarterback option. I think I'd rather go with the sign Daniel Jones to a, to a cheap deal. If Daniel Jones says like, like it's laid out in Huckleberry Nacho's um, instance right here, he has a, you know, a solid season. I'm not saying, yeah, I'm not saying I feel comfortable with Tyrod Taylor. I'm not saying I feel comfortable with Daniel Jones, though, either. I think that's the point here. I think it's incredibly hard to find a quarterback. It's not going to be easy. 
<laughs> you could you could trade for Russell Wilson occasionally. And that's a big, you know, you take a big yeah. leap forward when you do that. You give a lot of draft picks and a lot of draft capital. And that's probably there probably won't be a Russell Wilson on the trade block this next offseason. And so it's not that I feel really comfortable with Tyra Taylor. It's more that I don't feel comfortable with Daniel Jones. And that's not based on any kind of negativity toward Jones. It's just based on what he's put on tape over the three years. It's not like to me, Jones has not been a much better quarterback than Tyrod Taylor. And the stats show that he's not been better. The stats, the stats literally show that Tyrod Taylor has given his teams a better chance to win than Jones. Now, again, there's different circumstances, different teammates, supporting cast, yada, yada, yada. But, uh, you know, Taylor has been a better processor than Jones. Taylor has been a better thrower off platform than Jones. And, Ultimately, Jones is what he is. If he goes into another season and has a mediocre year, that's four years of it. And so, you know, at that point, it's not that I it's not that I feel comfortable with Tyra Taylor. It's that the other option isn't that much better to me. Yeah, it's I think there are a lot of variables to weigh into that. And we've gone over that plenty of times throughout Daniel Jones's career with the offensive line, with Jason Garrett, Joe Judge, all of those things. But uh also the other part of Nacho's question here is the reason I would be comfortable with mortgaging the future to going up and get a guy is only if Brian Dable, Mike Kafka, Joe Shane, and everybody collectively is on board with said player. And they really like that player. I don't want there to be a reach like there was in 2019 with Daniel Jones, where it's like, okay, Justin Herbert's not going out. Dave Gettleman falls in love with Daniel Jones. Okay. We're just going to pick him at six. Now I like Daniel Jones, but was he worth the six pick? No, he, he wasn't. That's in my opinion. So as long as everybody's on the same page, I am okay with them mortgaging future draft picks to get their guy, but it has to be their guy and it has to be a collective decision. I guess it's just like today's climate. You do have to tiptoe around it, but it's not really your opinion, Nick. It's the opinion of everyone else but the Giants fans, to be completely honest. And John Mara, like he has been nowhere near worth the six pick as far as what he's put on film. Yes, there's some reasons for it, but there's, you know, there's examples of a lot of these worth it type guys doing well without everything around them being perfect right now. So it's not really an opinion. I guess you have to tippy toe to be nice and not sound quote unquote like a hater. But it's not being a hater when you're being objective, in my opinion. And I know you know that, Nick. And so ultimately, it's like he needs to show a lot more for me, Daniel Jones, to to, to go into it like we got to resign this guy. And if we don't, we're so screwed with Tyrod Taylor and Davis Webb. Because as of right now, he hasn't proven to me that he gives them that next level above a Tyrod Taylor. He just hasn't proven it at all. Not to me, to everyone. And so that could change this year. He's shown flashes and he has a lot more upside than Taylor. I think that's the key here. I think you were getting to that a little bit in your point, Nick. Jones has more upside. He has more flash. Taylor, we kind of know, won't ever be the guy. Maybe Jones can be the guy for the Giants if he gets consistent with his flashes. But if it's another so-so season, that's a large sample size. And I personally won't feel very regretful if they decide to move on. Okay, yeah, that's fair enough. EJ Carpino asks, Big Blue Banter with the hashtag. Thank you. What impact or involvement do you see the defensive rookies, specifically Dane Belton, Michael McFadden, Darian Beavers having this season? That's a great question, EJ. I think the first two may have an impact this season. Dane Belton's an interesting one, especially when you consider how often the Giants are using their safeties to blitz and how often in the past Wink Martindale has used three safeties on the field at the same time. The Giants don't have much depth at safety outside of McKinney and Love, the two Shoe-in starters. I think as long as injuries don't happen, both McKinney and Love will be starting week one um, in, in the packages where they only have two safeties. But when they're going to expand that, Belton could really play that role. And he's already shown flashes on film at Iowa of being able to play down in the box, being able to play in the deep half, being utilized in that versatile role. And I think that's only going to help him get on the field. 
So I think he has a really good chance to make an impact as a rookie and be involved. And McFadden is probably one that I'm more excited about if he hits that ceiling, that ceiling being the one that gets him on the field and allows him to make an impact more so because I feel like Tate Crowder is not the answer there alongside Blake Martinez, but I think it could be a longer, steeper learning curve and a longer process for him to get on the field versus a guy like Belton, given what the Giants have been doing with their safeties, given how you know they're going to be so aggressive with their safeties, and that's only going to help Belton because he has to think less, and thinking is going to make his job, you know, make it hard for him to get on the field. As far as Beavers, he's more of a wild card to me. Uh, we'll see if he can kind of get on in some sub packages, but I think I would rank in order of involvement if I had to predict right now, Nick. Belton most involved, McFadden second most involved, and Beavers third most. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I'll try not to reiterate here, but I think Belton is going to have a role on this defense from day one. McFadden, I think, will ultimately take Tate Crowder's job at some point and probably slowly learn. In year one, do you say, are you saying that, Nick? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Learn and earn more snaps as the season progresses. Kind of spelling Crowder here, but then maybe by the end of the season, you're going to see a little bit more McFadden than Crowder. I don't think Crowder is just going to completely go away, though. And then as for Beavers, I think he's going to be a sub-package player that you can do a lot of different interesting things with, but you don't necessarily want him operating in space. So I think Wink Martindale will pick and choose when he wants to use him if he does crack the 53-man roster. Fair enough. All right, let's move on to Austin Iannetta, who asks, have Gettleman shopping sprees altered your mindset on free agency? I would love to see an episode based on potential high, middle, and low AAV signings for the 2023 offseason. Yeah, and AAV is annual average value. So I think what Gettleman did was just out of pure desperation. And a lot of that is his fault. Some of it is also, if you want to go back and look at the roster that Gettleman inherited, wasn't all that great either. So he poured a lot of money into the 2018 free agent spending. A lot of that was just whiff, whiff, whiff. That is on Dave Gettleman. But he had a lot of holes that he had to fill at the same time. So it was a pretty shitty situation just in general. So I never really think the way Gettleman approached a lot of what he did during his free agent tenure here as the New York Giants general manager was a way to actually build a team. It was out of pure desperation. It was kind of like, okay, I'm just going to swing for the fences here because I don't really have any other options. And he missed terribly when he swung for the fences. I honestly think that Dan has said this in previous podcasts about what Joe Shane has done with the low AAV signings that he made a lot of year one year kind of commitments and even three year commitment with a guy like Mark Lewinsky, that is a much better way to build a roster, but you need to have a stable foundation of players that you drafted in the building in order to successfully build that roster. Unless you're in a complete rebuild year, like the giants seem like they kind of are in right now. Yeah, it's a great point. It's a great question. And for me, it has changed a little bit. I still believe in big spending in manipulating the cap, as you're seeing the Rams do, they just re-signed Cooper Cup. What happened, everyone's saying? I thought they were in cap. What happened? It's the same thing the Saints have done, same thing the Eagles and Cowboys have done, which people are low-key not understanding or seeing. It's the manipulation of the cap. It still can be done. The Giants were trying to do that last offseason, in a sense. Um, but to me, what's changed now, at least for me, is I no longer am interested in doing this until I have a quarterback who I think can win a Super Bowl. Until I have a quarterback who I think can go on a run in the playoffs. Until that happens, I'm not interested. I'd rather just keep building through resigning your own players. You draft if they hit. Hopefully, you hope they hit. Or low, you know, low AAV to mid AAV type of signings in free agency, and one year prove it deals as well for maybe some more high profile guys. But until you have that quarterback. It's just that I, again, the quarterback who I think has Super Bowl upside, 
or at least deep playoff run upside. It just doesn't make sense to me to get yourself into a kind of, uh, you know, tough salary cap situation. Now let's actually incorporate Huckleberry Nacho's question about signing Lamar Jackson next off season. I know we kind of already touched on this, but just because these two questions can be looked at through the same prism, would you be more for signing a player like Lamar if he does have a good season and for whatever reason, the Ravens didn't re-sign him with the roster that the Giants are currently building right now as it pertains to the question that was just asked by Austin. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, it's an interesting one if he was just a full free agent. Um, and could be signed. I just feel like it's it's a it's an interesting scenario because I don't know how well he fits what Dable wants to do, but I also think Dabes could just completely revamp his system for him um, yeah. eventually. But I don't know if the Giants have the the offensive line in place that I would want, um, or the run game in place, just because Barkley's most likely they're mo- I, I think they're going to most likely move on from Barkley next year, and so I probably would be out on that. What about you? Yeah, I think there's still a lot to kind of go over because like how did the Giants perform this season is going to answer a lot of questions as to if the Giants would even be in a position to invest big on a player like Lamar Jackson next offseason. We have no idea what the Giants rushing attack is going to be like. We have no idea how successful Brian Dable is going to be as a head coach. We have no idea what Mike Kafka is going to do as an office coordinator. So there's still a lot of questions that have to be answered. I wouldn't fully rule anything out. That's kind of the way I approach a lot of these things. Like you could just take it a day at a time and, and then reevaluate, but just sitting here. And if I am looking forward, I, I'm not, a, I, I kind of lean in the same direction as you right now, because that's going to be a, a record setting type of contract. And again, a lot of it pertains to how Lamar Jackson plays this season too. So there's just a lot of variables that I, I just don't know. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's move on to Robert Allen, who asks, what do you feel about my take on minicamps? He says, one, if a guy is playing bad, if a guy is bad in minicamp, it's worrisome. Two, if a guy is meh in mini, or plays well in minicamp, it's eh, not important. Three, if a player looks way head and shoulders above the rest, that's when we take notice. Yeah, minicamps, it's not training camp. There's, there's no hitting. The way the Giants constructed minicamp this year, they took the third mini camp off. The first one was kind of a real practice, and the second one was a little bit more of a walkthrough. So I, I guess you can look at it like that, Robert. I'm not really worried if somebody's bad. I guess I take note of it. If somebody's looking great, I definitely take note of it. Like Richie James was getting praise, and I think that's good. But at the same time, there's, there's no Sterling Shepard there. There's no Kenny Galladay there, Kadarius Tony. So I don't take huge things away from mini camp, regardless on if it's terrible or great. 
Yeah, this is probably not a good one. <laughs> good answer coming from me, Nick. I have to let you know ahead of time as far as promoting our content moving forward. <laughs> we do want people to tune into these next year and the years and the years coming. But for me, Robert, I take almost nothing away from performance in minicamp. That to me, what matters to me in minicamp are a few things. One, who's getting the reps and where are they getting the reps? That's the most important thing to me. Who's getting the reps? Where are they getting the reps? Two, what kind of formations and what kind of personnel packages each coordinator is using. But as far as performance on the field from the players, to me, it's worth almost nothing. I think if everyone had a chance to actually see what goes down in mini cram practice, like if you were in the, if you had like goggles that let you be in, let's say, I don't know, Dan Duggan or Art Stapleton or any of these beat writers eyes, guys, and they don't even get that good of a view, by the way, I've been to these practices before. They don't, the media view isn't great. Let's say you were in a giant position coach's eyes for a day of mini camp. I think you'd kind of have a better idea of what I mean when I say they just don't mean that much. These are just, these are glorified walkthroughs, even like the first day, which was the toughest day of this mini camp. These guys don't have pads on. These guys are running at 75%, maybe I would think. And it's kind of just more of what Dave said. It's all about the install right now. It's all about getting these guys on the same page. It's all about letting them get the mental side down so they can then play faster when it actually matters in camp, in the preseason, the regular season. So I just, as far as player performance goes, they have to write about something. You have to put something out there to, you know, to satiate the fans' interest. But it's a very, in my mind, it's very overrated one way or another for players playing bad or good. I agree. And one thing I will say is like, and this is more for the OTAs, when you have a one-on-one -on -one matchup down the field and it's a jump ball situation and it's receiver versus defensive back. Now that's something that's somewhat translatable, somewhat right. translatable to Sundays. But at the end of the day, we're talking about one rep here and it, you'll see it like a thousand times on Twitter. So it's not the crap on the content, but it, it's, it's, it's a lot of reaching, you know, and it's not just that it's like even with these reps, how many times do we, especially with so many teams moving to like these two high looks and these deep shell looks like how many one-on-ones down the field are we even seeing in the regular season? I thinking back to the giants last year, this is probably the worst example to go through literally the worst team to go through. But over the last two years, I just haven't seen many of these examples at all on tape of those types of plays. So it's somewhat translatable, like you said, but there's just not too many situations where you just have, all day in the world to throw the ball to some one-on-one -on -one situation and and like the corner the good receiver can make a play on the corner or, or vice versa it just it's somewhat translatable but not not so much yeah i think that's a good way to put it dan Xander asks where does evan neal rank as a prospect compared to tackles that have come out in the last few years best tackle prospect top five middle of the pack hashtag big blue banter great question Xander. i'll just go by the last three classes, because that's, I think, the ones I've most seriously studied at the OT position. I think about Rashawn Slater last year, both Nick and I loved. And I wonder how much of what I think now, in an example like Slater versus Neal, is shaped by what Slater did as a rookie, because Slater was just so dominant as a rookie. But his footwork and his athleticism and then his strength because you even saw it at Northwestern when he was uh, squatting like some stupid amount. He had the core strength and the power that no one really gave him credit for to go along with the foot, the feet, and the insane athleticism in space. And all those three things combined to make him what he was in his breakout rookie season. And I think in a lot of ways, Tristan Wirfs was a very similar prospect. Maybe not as smooth in space 
and at the second level as Slater, but really good feet, really good athleticism, and really good power. Evan Neal, to me, has the size factor and the length factor based on his size, and he has pretty good feet in pass protection. He doesn't have, in my mind, the same kind of feet as a Slater, and he doesn't have the same kind of power. To be honest, I really don't feel – I'm curious to get your take on this, Nick. I thought he was a less powerful prospect than Werfs for sure, and potentially Slater as well. Slater is underrated power and underrated core strength, and Andrew Thomas as well. So I would say for me, he's probably closer to being ranked like four, five, six OT of these last three classes. What about you? I think I tend to agree with you. And I think another reason why we see maybe a little bit more power from Slater is because from a technique standpoint and a leverage standpoint, he can unlock a much better way to control his defenders. Evan Neal can't necessarily do that because he's six foot eight. He doesn't get as low. And he doesn't always play with a high center of gravity or anything like that. But Slater is very balanced. He's very controlled. Whereas Evan Neal can get a little bit out of control, specifically in the run game when he's moving a little bit laterally. I think another reason why Rashawn Slater fell was also because remember we have to take into account he opted out the 2020 season. A lot of people kind of took some stock into that. We saw him fall. We saw Michael Parsons fall. Those guys didn't play in 2020 because of the COVID opt out. So I think maybe the NFL viewed that in a little bit more precariously than they would right now. Cause both those guys are absolute studs. If I had to put a number on it and I don't have a list of players in front of me, I'd probably have Evan Neal around six though. Maybe, maybe, maybe five. Cause Tristan Wirfs, I was lower on coming out, but I didn't, I only had like access to one all 22 film, which was the Michigan tape. And I think I saw like a broad, the only broadcast film that I think I got my hands on was the Penn state game. And those weren't great games for Tristan Wirth. So he looked worse. I didn't get a hold of a lot of the games that he played really, really well on. At least I have a little bit more access to film now with uh, just the black market film that we come across and everything like that. So I think I probably have him around five or six. I think that's probably fair. Uh, Andrew Thomas and him, I go back and forth on, man. And uh, I'm not 100% certain on which one I would be a little bit higher on. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, again, a lot of it can be clouded by what they've already done at the NFL level, so it's harder to evaluate. But I will finalize it by saying this. While I do think Evan Neal's size, his ridiculous size, is is a good thing, I think it helps him more in the pass game than the run game. I think that's pretty evident when you watch him. He, you know, The leverage battle is important at the NFL level, and it's going to be – I think it could lead to some examples of him uh, not being the run blocker everyone maybe expects him to be early on, but we'll see. We'll see what happens there. And I'm like just trying to break, like, because we could have a whole podcast on this because you got to break it down by trade. Like, the way Evan Neal employs his hands and does hand combat with his timing, his technique, his placement on the shoulder, on the bicep, you know, on the small of the back, it's pretty damn good. Like, Rashawn Slater yeah. was really good in that aspect. But you look at someone like Penny Sewell, who's a very good prospect coming out, he's not necessarily as refined as someone like an Evan Neal. So I think you would really have to break that down by traits to really give a full analysis of it. Because even now that I'm sitting here, I said, five or six i'm like reconsidering i'm like maybe he'd be higher than that i'm not really certain on where i would rank him at the moment yep that's fair all right stan McCune asks at what point post draft or at one point post draft joe shane said the giants had seven players on their board going into the combine and went down to six after the combine who do you think did poorly at the combine either testing medicals or interview that they dropped i think it would be Derek stingley in terms of the medicals, I mean, it seemed like the Giants put a priority on finding healthy players, and Derek Stingley missed a lot of time because of that foot injury. And I also heard people say that he wasn't the best interviewer. I don't know how true that is. I have no 
actual inside access to it. It's just something I heard. But if you had to pick players that were selected before Kayvon Thibodeau, before Evan Neal, who's the one player that you think fits this bill? And to me, it's Derek Stingley. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense when you consider the Giants passed over Kobe Dean multiple times. They talked about that. Joe Shane made it clear in his pre-draft presser that there's going to be guys we pass on. And he's like, if if they have an amazing career elsewhere, God bless them and and good for those teams. But we're not going to be scared of that. We're going to, you know, stick with our plan, which is factor in the injury situation and the injury history highly clearly. So I think I think it's definitely Stingley. Yes. So Chris Herrera asks, how much better do you guys think Daniel Jones will be throwing against the blitz now going up against it in practice much more? Daniel Jones has struggled against opposing blitzing defenses like Bulls from the Bucks. Yeah, it's a great question. And we touched on this a little bit in our OTAs recap, but it's going to help him. No matter what, it's going to help him because seeing it's just like anything else in life. Practice does make perfect. I don't know. Practice doesn't make perfect. That's isn't there a better line? It's like practice. I, I think a teacher used to tell me this. Maybe you know it, Nick. So it was like practice makes perfect. No, but it's blah, 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 blah. It's like something else. Practice makes something. Do you know? Progress. progress. There it is. Practice makes progress. That's the best way to describe it. So practice makes progress. And so it's going to help him. But ultimately, unfortunately for Jones and any quarterback, it's not just Jones it's just not the same as when it's live in the game. And when you have to adjust to things pre-snap, when you have to adjust to things post-snap and there's a crowd and there's a down and distance and there's a score in the game and you have to either come back or try to protect the lead. And so ultimately this is something he has to improve on live and live game reps. And he just has to speed up his whole process. Daniel Jones's entire process in my mind needs to be, needs to be sped up from when he get how he gets himself set in the pocket, how he manipulates his footwork in the pocket to re, when he has to reset in the pocket, how fast he can reset and then get his shoulders squared to deliver the football. To me, Daniel Jones is and will always be a quarterback who needs a balanced base and his shoulders squared to be effective in the NFL. I've seen Jones too many times on film try to throw from an unbalanced base with his shoulders not squared and the ball placement is not there and the velocity is not there. When he does have those things in place, though, he can throw a good ball. It's tall. It comes out of his hand really nice. It's not the most high-velocity ball, but it has decent velocity. When he has his shoulder squared, he has decent velocity on his ball and pretty good ball placement. So for him, he's going to have to learn, speed that entire process up. But at the same time, obviously, you don't want him like over-complicating it and, and speeding up too much to the point where he gets sloppy with his footwork or anything like that. So it's a it's a it's a big process for him, but I think it should help. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to him and kind of how fast he can process things. Yeah, we touched on this quite a bit in the previous podcast. If you haven't listened, I encourage you to listen to it about minicamp. And I agree with what Dan just laid out. So Derek Bentley asks, hashtag Big Blue Panther. How many sacks do you guys predict in year one for Kayvon, assuming he plays every game? But Dan, I want to approach this in a bit of a different manner put an over-under on it, and then we'll come to the conclusion of Derek Bentley's question. Okay, I'm going to put an over-under on exactly how many Aziz Ojolari had last year. So what did Aziz finish with? Was it 10 or 10 and a half? I believe it was 10, but I think that's from Pro Football Focus. I want to see Pro Football Reference because yeah, they're different. That is true, and that's not a great sign when two different outlets have different... Oh. It's just because pro football focus doesn't count half sacks. They count right. half sacks as full full sacks. So Aziz Ojolari, according to pro football reference, had eight sacks. Okay. Aziz had eight sacks. So 
let's put the over under considering he let's put the over under at 10. 10 is interesting. So I was thinking about setting the over under at nine. Okay. You can I, set I, it at nine. I think I would go over. I think Kayvon Thibodeau might have like nine and a half sacks. I think a lot of teams are going to pay attention to Kayvon Thibodeau. Their protection packages are going to go in that direction. I don't think he'll always be pinning his ears back. I think he'll be dropping in the coverage a little bit. I think he'll be a damn good run defender as well. And I think nine, nine and a half with a couple half sacks in there because I think we're going to see a little bit more half sacks because the Giants are putting a lot of pressure on the opposing team. There's going to be multiple guys who are going to be coming in unblocked because of the pre-snap deception. So I think Kayvon could get to the quarterback several times for sacks, but there'll be half sacks because Azizio Jolari is there or freaking Julian Love is there, you know? So I'm going to go with a, a nine and a half. I would not be shocked if it's 11 though. I'm taking the over and I'm going to go like, I think he's going to get to 10, 12, 10 through 12 sacks in this season. I think he's really got a good chance to do it. And yes, the defensive attention will be there, but he's just going to benefit from this system. This is such an aggressive system. It's going to give him more opportunities to sack the quarterback. It may lead to more coverage breakdowns and big plays allowed by the past defense, but that doesn't impact Kayvon Thibodeau's bottom line. So I'm going to take the over on this one. I like that. And one reason why I'm not overly enthusiastic has nothing to do with Kayvon Thibodeau. I think Kayvon Thibodeau is a, is a great pass rushing asset as a rookie who has so much room for development. But if you look at Wink Martindale's defenses in the past, he's had players who were really good pass rushers who didn't necessarily have, you know, 12 sacks or 15 sacks because like I said earlier, the defense is built on bringing a lot of different pressure from a lot of different pressure type of looks to where guys like, Darnay Holmes might have like three sacks or some defensive back who you would never think would have that many pressures or sacks is going to have that because that's the way the defense is set up. So that's kind of why I err towards the nine and a half range. It's nothing to do with Kayvon. It's more to do with the system. But at the same time, if you just win your one-on-ones, which Kayvon Thibodeau is capable of doing, you can rack up the sacks in this system as well. It's just this system is much more of a collective approach rather than a just beat your guy and we're going to get pressure that way. Right, and that makes a lot of sense. All right, we got another good one here from Sean who asks, who leads the Giants in receiving yards this season? I love this question, and I'm not really – I'm honestly – I've gone back and forth because I just saw this question coming up. I want to say Kenny Galladay, but I look at Kadarius Toney, and if Kadarius Toney is healthy this entire season, his yak ability could be just insanely potent in this offense. So I think gun to my head – I think I'm going to go with Kenny Galladay, but I I don't know. My gut's saying KT. It's a great question, uh, especially because you look at it like, one, the Giants offense and passing games expect to take a leap forward with Dable. At the very least, it's expected to be an offense that takes more chances, doesn't worry as much about the turnovers, spaces things out a little bit more, has more tempo, has more spread, has more vertical elements, all things that should lead to more passing yards total. Also, it's expected to be an offense that throws a lot on first down, a lot more than the Giants had been. Brian Dable not only was a first down thrower, he was an all down thrower. He very rarely ran called the run in Buffalo. Um, and I don't know if that's going to change all that much because I believe he even feels like he can use Barkley, Wandale, and Tony as an extension of the run game through the quick passing game. And so I think there will be a lot of a lot more passing yards, a lot more receiving yards to go around. I originally was going to say Kenny Galladay here because look. There's a clip of him, and he's wearing the red jersey, and he's running around. I think Bobby Skinner threw this up on Twitter. Kudos to him. I think it was from SNY video. 
you look at it was back to back Kenny Galladay running the same route as Alec Bachman, I think, or one of those types of receivers. You could just see the difference, right? Kenny Galladay has more length. He has more suddenness off his break right off the line of scrimmage. And he has more suddenness getting into his or getting or no, his release off the line of scrimmage and then his break within the route. And he's bigger. He's faster. He's quicker than these Alec Bachman types. He is a next level type athlete at the receiver position. And I still think he's going to be a great player for the Giants. But I think in this specific offense, given the development and the timeline for the offensive line, and to be quite frank, Daniel Jones's skill set, the answer is Gadarius Tony. I think he only really needs 12 to 13 games healthy even to lead the team in receiving yards. I think he's going to be that much of a weapon after the catch and also just in general in what they for what they want to do and what not not only what they want to do, what they're able to do, to be completely honest, like what they're able to accomplish in the passing game. They're going to have to be honest and frank with themselves. They're not going to be able to run the Josh Allen offense here. That's just to be completely honest, unless you have Josh Allen stepping in for Daniel Jones tomorrow, that's that they're not running that offense. It's going to be a different look than what we've seen. We've already heard that, too, by the way, Nick. We've heard a lot of I think it was. Maybe Jones or one of the players in the offense say, look, we're already seeing a lot of con- – I think it was Feliciano. He's like, we're already seeing the difference between this offense and what we ran in Buffalo based on the Kafka influence, and that's coming from KC. A lot of pre-snap motion, a lot of quick-hitting stuff. So, to me, Kadarius Tony fits that bill the best. He does fit that bill the best. I would not be shocked if it's Kadarius Tony. I would not be shocked if it's Kenny Galladay. Heck, you know, I'm trying to think of like a sleeper here. Like, I don't even know if Darius Sterling Shepard's the big time sleeper. In my yeah, he is. It's just the health, man. The health is always a, right. a thing. I thought, I think last year I said Sterling Shepard lead the Giants. It's all contingent on health, which is obviously something that's been a sticking point throughout his career. But we have an interesting question, Dan, maybe more tailored towards you from Pastrami Nostradamus, who asks, hashtag big blue banter, best pizza crust death. Yeah, I'll start by saying this, Nick. It really shouldn't be more tailored toward me. Like, start eating pizza, make it a part of your life, understand how good it tastes, understand that you can eat a couple slices of pizza every now and then, Nick. Everything's (laughs) going to be fine. Life will move on. I um, Every time I come back to Jersey, I make a point to have pizza, which is so funny because when I lived in Jersey most of my life, I didn't really eat it other than being a kid. Like as an adult, I wouldn't eat it. But now that I live in Arizona and I've actually tried the pizza out here and it's not, you know, it's, it's, I don't even like calling it pizza. It's, it's not good. So whenever I do go back, I do make a point to have pizza. All right. You've made some positive changes in your life and there have been reflected in that, but (laughs) overall, Nick, you gotta eat more. You gotta eat more bad food for you. You gotta understand like, you're going to live. You're going to live super long. You're in incredible shape, Nick. You don't need to worry about eating pizza. I'm glad you've made these changes. Start to, you know, baby steps here. You'll eat some pizza now and then. <laughs> and it moves on to some other things. But as far as pizza crust depth goes, look, I have respect for famous Rays of Verona. I'm sure some of you listening to Fox have been there. I have respect for those fat, doughy slices. It's not that I don't respect them. Occasionally, I'm in the mood for them. But it's not the best pizza crust depth. The best pizza crust depth is thin crust pizza with Ooh. a nice undercarriage. Yeah, it's by far the best. You think of all the best pies, Sally's of Peas. You think of Frank Pepe's. You think of Star Tavern. You think of John's Bleecker. You think of any of these slices. They're all thin crust for a reason. You need to have the undercarriage. You, can't, you don't want the flop. The flop's no good. You don't want a chewy, doughy bite. You want a crisp, 
nice, awesome bite of pizza. And that's what you get with a thin crust pizza. Doesn't I don't like I don't like super thin. Like I don't want like flatbread style, like the thinny thin or any of that. I think that's one of the places that has a famous pizza thinny thin, which is actually pretty good because it's got good ingredients. But talking about like think about like Domino's thin crust, even though that if I'm gonna order Domino's Nick, I only order their thin crust, but that's more of a flatbread. I don't go flatbread depth, but in between like let's say like the medium rare <laughs> the medium rare of pizza crust depth so you're against like the st louis crust which is basically just like a piece of cardboard it's completely flat yeah that i'm against and i'm also against the the i'm not against like i will eat a deep dish pizza i've been to illuminati's in chicago it's amazing but that's i treat that as more of like a lasagna it is kind of more like i think there could be arguments for that and when, when you say thin crust, you're just talking about like a normal New York, New Jersey style pizza, right? A little thinner than that normal. Okay, so I like just the normal New York style pizza. And I haven't had that many different types of pies. I have had Chicago deep dish at Giordano's uh, in Chicago, and that was pretty solid. But it was uh, it was a different type. Like I was eating it with a freaking fork, you know, like yeah, I, I don't yeah, that's yeah. weird. Like I don't <laughs> it doesn't feel like pizza to me. Uh, so I'm always going to go with like that. Just typical. You go down to the corner store in Jersey and there's a bunch of Italians in a pizzeria. You get a pizza pie and the crust is that way. And that's typically my favorite type of crust. A classic style. All right. Shano Mack asks, what veterans are you most excited to see and expect the most improvement from this year? Veterans most proven. So is Dexter Lawrence a veteran right now? I guess Dexter, so, right? Yeah, Dexter Lawrence would qualify, correct. I think I might roll with with Dexy. I think he's one that I'm interested to see how he progresses. I'm not 100% certain if he's going to take his game to the next level, but I like the pairing of him with Andre Patterson. He's the first name that kind of jumps out at me, comes to my mind. Xavier McKinney, I, but he already kind of took that step forward, so he's one that I'm not necessarily grouping into that, but he's definitely somebody that I think can even take it to the next level. And then if we look offensively, Shane Lemieux. He missed all of last season. He seems like he's getting the first crack at the left guard spot. I want to see how he can perform in that position and if he can really fix those vulnerabilities that he seemed to have as a pass protector back in 2020. You mentioned some great ones there, Nick. I'm going to go with Kadarius Tony. If he can stay on the field, I think he can be spectacular in this season with the Giants in this system. And the flip side of the ball, Julian Love. I'm really excited to see him finally get his chance to play a hefty amount of snaps, the most in his career he's projected for. He might be an every down player. I think there's a chance he could look so good in that role. Now, I'm not talking like he's McKinney level good, but good enough that they can give him a second contract and they can finally extend someone from one of their draft classes. It will be like a reasonable deal. Nothing too crazy Four to six to 8 million range, whatever per year. But as the cap goes up, that's not even that big of a deal, but just a solid guy that you can extend and seeing how he plays within this new role of like having a chance to be on the field a lot more often. Love the Julian love call. I think that's excellent. And Dan, this is a great question as well from, I guess, West lock is probably how you pronounce this. Which position coach is more crucial to the success of the 2022 Giants? Bobby Johnson, offensive line coach, or Jerome Henderson, the secondary coach? Another great question. I am actually going to go with Jerome Henderson in this one because there's just a lot more pressure to me on Jerome Henderson here and the secondary because of what Wink Martindale wants to do from a schematic standpoint with the heavy blitz and with the heavy pressure style defense. And Less depth at the cornerback position, in my opinion, in the offensive line, which is surprising to say, but 
somehow the truth. We would have never thought that last year, but now is the case. And not only less depth, it's a more injury-prone position. So I know the Giants have been a little unlucky in the offensive line with injuries, but typically the, the offensive line is a lot less injury-prone of position than corner. So to me, just a lot more pressure on Henders. Yeah, you want to lean towards the offensive line because the Giants' offensive line has just been horrendous, and we've had a lot of bad offensive line coaches throughout the last maybe like five years or so. But I have to agree. I think it is Jerome Henderson, who is one of my favorite coaches on this staff at cornerback. And I think a big reason why I lean towards Henderson is when you look at the personnel, look at the offensive line personnel. Yes, you have some young players. You have the rookies that they drafted. You have Evan Neal, but you also have Mark Lewinsky. You have veterans like Lewinsky. Andrew Thomas is now a veteran. You have Max Garcia. You have players like that who have kind of been around the block, John Feliciano. Whereas when you look at the secondary, you're like, all right, just got rid of James Bradbury. You have a Dory Jackson, who's still a young player, but he's a veteran in his own right. Then you have Aaron Robinson, a second-year guy who's been kicked around a bunch of different spots in the secondary, and now you're trusting him to be your second boundary. Have Rodarius Williams behind him. Darnay Holmes, who has spent a lot of his career kind of dinged up and injured, but is he going to be a slot or will it be Cordell Flott? So I, I, I really want to lean in that direction as well towards Jerome Henderson, and that's where I'm going to go because of the personnel and the importance that Wink Martindale puts on the secondary. All right. SAP asks, how do you see the wide receiver depth chart panning out? And do you see Slayton as a cut coming soon or will he be a depth piece for the Giants? Yeah, we talked about this on the last podcast as well. Darius Slayton. I think there is a possibility he can be cut and it's not because he can't return value. It's because the Giants have a lot of depth at the wide receiver position right now in terms of the CJ boards and the Alex Bachmans and the Colin Johnsons and the players like that. Are these players proven commodities who are better than Darius Slayton? No, but Darius Slayton is in the last year of his deal. Darius Slayton is counting 2.5 against the cap that they could save and a team that is cap strapped. So I do think there is a possibility that he can be released. I'm not a hundred percent on that ship. I don't think the Giants should necessarily release him, but I do think there is a path to where he is released. And as for the depth chart in general, I think Kenny Galladay is going to be your X. I think your Z, if there is no Darius Slayton, let's go. Should, could be any of these players. I think they're interchangeable between the slot and the Z. I think just Kenny Galladay is mainly the X, but you can put Kadarius Tony in the backfield. You can put him in the slot. You can put him off the line of scrimmage as a Z. You can do the same stuff with Wandell Robinson. You probably aren't going to line him outside all that often unless it's in a reduced offensive split where he's inside the numbers and he has all that space to still operate and release to the inside or the outside. But I think it really is just going to revolve around those top four players. There is no Slayton, and that is Shepard, Wandell, Kadarius and Kenny Galladay and then say Slayton is released I think that fifth guy could possibly be like a CJ board type somebody who is going to have a special teams impact yet somebody who can step in and be solid enough to to fill a role I think it's going to be interesting man with, with Slayton I'm I hope he does make the teams I think he's better than the options that I discussed a little bit earlier but I think the opportunity is there for one of those guys to step up if they are so inclined Yep, I think you're on point there. I think Slayton's experience playing outside inside will help him ultimately <coughs> as far as sticking on the roster, excuse me. But it'll be interesting to track. All right, let's take a look at the next one here. And it comes from Josh Duhon, who asked if Daniel Jones steps up and throws for 3,500 yards, more than 3,500 yards and 30 TDs, but the Giants only go seven and nine. So I guess he means seven and 10 these days. Would you prefer to hang, to tag him, franchise tag him, and build a team for next year with the upcoming cap space or sign him long-term to create more cap space? 
I think I would prefer the tag, but it also depends on how the Giants are losing those games. If it's just like, you know, the 2015 Giants where the defense can't do anything and they can't contain anybody and it's not on Daniel Jones, then then that's not really on Daniel Jones's fault. Daniel Jones like leads like two minute drives and scores, but then the defense gives up like a 30 second, you know, drive that puts the other team in the field goal position and the Giants end up losing in that manner. It's not Daniel on Daniel Jones, but Daniel Jones is making bad decisions down the stretch of games and isn't showing the mental toughness and the processing that he needs to when all the chips are on the table, then I don't think the Giants should sign him long-term. And I'm kind of dubious to sign him long-term, even if he has this type of season. We only saw it one year. I'm not opposed, though, to the franchise tag option with the Giants. We'll have a lot of different uh, a lot of cap space next year to possibly execute that if they don't love any of the quarterbacks coming out. Yeah, Nick, for sure. I mean, look, if he throws 3,530 plus TDs, I'm going to be so much more interested in re-signing him than I am now because those are big numbers and those are explosive numbers and those will show growth as far as what he is able to do as a passer, him seeing the open windows, him seeing the tighter windows, taking chances and making plays in them. So the wins are less important to me than the kind of progress that he's making as a thrower. Robert Allen asks, hashtag big blue banter. We've heard about how Giants have Wandell and Tony and Barkley. Haven't heard much about Galladay for Dayball's offense. What do you think we should expect from him? Yeah, like I said earlier, I really like Galladay. I think that his film from Detroit was spectacular. And while this might not seem as cookie cutter perfect fit as it was for Jason Garrett's offense, well, guess what? He didn't do anything in Jason Garrett's offense either because no one was really a good fit. It just wasn't a good offense. I'd rather you know, bank on a player being a product of an offense that's functioning a lot more healthy than an offense that is supposed to be predicated as moving through the X receiver, quote unquote, as what Galladay we expect him to be. So I think Dable will move him around more, give him some opportunities in the slot where he's been successful in the past with Matt Stafford in Detroit. And so I still think he's going to be a big role, big piece. And I think there's a good case to be made. He might be the most valuable player on the offense at the receiver position. Yeah, I think Kenny Galladay is going to be involved if he's healthy in Brian Dable's offense. I think he will be the X. I think like as Dan said, you can move him into the slot. You can do a lot of different things from him, try to create one-on-one matchups on the outside where he can use that catch radius and that ability to climb that ladder and pluck the ball out of the air. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Hopefully it, well, it better be a lot better than whatever the heck we saw last season because that was terrible. Yeah, without a doubt. Okay, Salon Queens asks, is there an objective way to predict likely offensive points scored and how that may translate to points and wins. I personally think 23 to 24 points per game with current personnel and scheme is possible. With an average G, I think that should pre- that should predict the Giants for 8 to 10 wins. So, Sal, first off, love interacting with you on Twitter. Last year, the Bills, with Josh Allen at quarterback, were third in points for. They averaged 28.4 points per game, finished with 483 total points. I think... Your estimation of 23, 24 points per game, it's probably, that's probably, at least hopefully, where the Giants will be at. I think the personnel in the scheme can get to that if Daniel Jones can prove. And that's the bottom line with a lot of what Dan and I have been talking about is can Daniel Jones put himself in the position to maximize all of these assets and weapons that he has around him now with a better offensive line and a more creative coordinator? So I think. That from the offensive side is attainable. Dan, would you agree? It's attainable. It starts with what Nick said, though, the quarterback. He's going to have to get them in a position to move the football a little bit better than they have been. Um, And so, yeah, it's definitely attainable, though. And I think, like you said, the defense could be average enough to the point where you can get to eight to ten wins that way, especially with an easy schedule. Yeah, hopefully. 
Jesse Chimino asks, three undrafted free agents you think have the best shot to make the roster and three undrafted free only three could make it. Love this question. Okay. Best shot to make the roster. I'm going to go Yusuf Corker. I'm going to go Austin Allen. And the third one, let's see who I'm going to go with the third one who has the best chance to make the roster. Allen. Corker. And for my third, I'll go Jeremiah Hall, thinking that they want to do something with the H-back. As far as who I would want, the first two are the same, Corker and Allen. And then Chris Hinton would be the third, if I can only pick three. I just think he has upside in this defense, you know, on this defensive line within this system. And so he would be my third. Like the call, Jeremiah Hall is very interesting to me because it really comes down to what the Giants offense wants to do. I think they're going to want maybe somebody who can fill a fullback role can any of these tight ends do that? You know, I, I don't really think they necessarily can right now. So Jeremiah Hall might be a shoe in. I'm not going to go in that direction. I have to agree with Corker and I have to agree with Austin Allen. And as for making the team, I think Hinton is in a position to make the squad as well. I think his name should be put into this category. Now for the players that I want, I might go with two safeties, man. I might go with Yusef Corker out of Kentucky and Trenton Thompson out of San Diego State. I really like Trenton Thompson's game and the third i think i would probably go with maybe just i mean just sean corbin is in this conversation too i might go with christopher hinton though in in this situation but i i like a couple of these undrafted guys i like austin allen i think he has the path because of the tight end position but i might like hinton even a little bit better just because allen i'm not a big believer in his athletic ability although i do love his size and i think that he can translate well back end tight end eventually, but I, I might go with Hinton because of what he can do as a run defender and his ability to align all across the defensive line. But Tom and Fox too, like he gets thrown into this situation. I really like him. So I might actually, you know what, man, I, I think I'm going to go with Tom and Fox, Trenton Thompson and Yusef Corker. That's where I think I'm going to go. Nice. All right. D from Cranford asks, analyzing Daniel Jones. I get his weaknesses, mainly pocket presence and awareness. What impact will well-designed offense have for his strengths passes on first down crossing wide patterns using mobility and maybe they'll get an average offensive line i think daniel jones if he really can put all this together you can maximize those strengths his ability to extend plays and run with the football and have designed quarterback runs i think that can be a big aspect of what brian dable and mike kafka can implement here they Brian Dable did it really successfully with Josh Allen. Now, Daniel Jones isn't Josh Allen in that department, but he's still a really good athlete, although you have to kind of take into account the fact that he's been injured a lot. That's another aspect of this. And I think if you get Daniel Jones comfortable enough to to throw and trust the one-on-one matchups to the outside with Kenny Galladay or Darius Slayton or whoever is out there, I think that is another place where we've seen Daniel Jones attack deep with success throughout his career, more specifically back in 2019. But he's solid with his accuracy and touch throwing deep when everything around him, there's no trash around his feet and he has a solid base and he stays square as Dan talked about. So I think he can do well in those situations. And I think the average or possibly hopefully even above average offensive line can really assist that. Now in terms of attacking the middle of the field, we've seen glimpses of that. We've seen him hit the dig route. We've even seen him, I think, hit the backside dig route, which is a big, important throw that everybody always talks about once you get through your progressions. You hit that backside dig, which Kenny Galladay is going to be responsible running that. But we haven't seen that consistent enough. Now, can he do that? If he can do that, that is going to be gravy. That is going to be excellent, and that can really help Daniel Jones take this Brian Dable offense to the next level. 
Yeah, I'm with Nick. I really think Dable can bring the best out of Jones. So we'll see. Kyle asks, how has Jones looked in new offense compared to years past? I'll say this, Kyle. We need to wait. We need to wait for the preseason. OTAs, it's too soon to say that. Um, would you think any differently there, Nick? No, I 100% agree. Yeah. So not too much there. All right, that's all the questions we have on today's mailbag. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for participating in the mailbag. It's going to be a dry period for the Giants and for the NFL in general, but we'll be back with position previews. We're going to do a deep dive on all the positions, so hopefully we'll be able to answer a few more questions there too. So have a great rest of your weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.